This morning, as we continue to worship our Lord, we're honored to have as our second speaker for this missions conference, Dr. Thomas Mack. Dr. Mack serves as vice president for academics at Cedarville University. He also serves as professor of history, teaching courses in United States history and worldview integration. In his spare time, he's authored numerous books and articles. I've had the privilege of serving with Dr. Mack for seven years at Cedarville. He was a dear friend and still is. And you know what I appreciate most about Tom is not his talents, his abilities and giftedness, which he clearly has, but all of that's laced with great humility and integrity. It is a rare thing and it is a real delight to have Tom and his wife, Chris, with us this morning. Chris, welcome to CBF. Tom, as you come to speak, please join me in welcoming Dr. Thomas Mack. Well, good morning. Your pastor is given to exaggeration. But I appreciate his kind words. Uh, David and I go back a long ways. We met each other just moments before we were being interviewed for a position at Cedarville many years ago. I, have, I will never forget that day because it's the beginning of, a, of one of the dearest uh, relationships in my life. His wife and he have been dear, dear friends to my wife and I. Uh, they've walked with us through some of the most uh, blessed moments of our lives and through some of the most challenging moments of our lives. And what has always impressed me about them is they uh, are willing to put the Word of God first, regardless of the cost, and uh, regardless of what's going on around them. And I, uh, when he asked me to come and speak here, I immediately said yes, not because I think I have anything particularly earth-shattering to share with you, uh, but because I am so excited and we are so excited to see where God has placed him. And I can't tell you how often he has talked to me about what a blessing you are in their lives. And so knowing that you're about to move into this church, new church building, how God has provided for that is uh, amazing. I knew that God had great things uh, planned for this church, and I look forward to seeing what he does through you in this community in the years to come. Um, one quick disclaimer, I'm not a preacher, I am a teacher. And so uh, I, am, I, I wanna reduce your expectations this morning in one respect, but on the other hand, what I wanna do is just make clear that, that I respect too much what happens in the pulpit on Sunday mornings. And I reserve that for men like your pastor. And so I just wanna share with you a few thoughts about um, our role as citizens in a country like the United States knowing that first and foremost, we are believers in Jesus Christ. We'll take a look at that together. We'll look at a number of different passages. We'll start in uh, Romans 13. That'll be our focus for today. Uh, you won't be surprised by that. So if you wanna turn there, I'm gonna make a few opening comments and then we'll take a look at that passage. Um, as a professor, I wanna start with some definitions, right? So what, what is government? And um, I am gonna borrow from a, an old textbook that I've used uh, teaching American government before. Uh, simply American government and politics today. It's a basic text. Here it is. Government is the structures by which decisions are made that resolve conflicts or allocate values. Let me get my slide up here so you can see that. Government, the structures by which decisions are made that resolve conflicts and allocate values. 
So you may laugh at that definition and say, well, government doesn't seem to resolve very many conflicts <laughs> and it doesn't always seem to think a lot about values. But the reality is what government is doing in a, in a system like ours is reflecting our values and it is making decisions uh, ultimately that are designed to uh, alleviate conflict. One political scientist said this, the differentiation between government and politics is this, politics is who gets what, when, and how. And maybe that's more representative of today than when our country started, but there's something to be said about that. When a community reaches a certain level of complexity due to its size, the number of people, whatever, it becomes necessary to establish a permanent or semi-permanent government, government of people to act for the whole, and that's what we have in front of us today. This is government. Now for, now for us, as believers in the revealed word of God, we recognize there's a place to start in thinking about government, and that of course is in Genesis. And we take the creation account seriously because we believe it is the word of God. And we recognize that in addition to uh, looking at what uh, the origins of this universe, this planet, life itself, we recognize that it also is the foundation for some um, uh, really important theological uh, positions that we hold. And so much of the doctrine uh, that we hold as Christians is rooted in the reality of God's creative work as expressed there in Genesis. And so it's a good place for us to start. I'm going to read to you Genesis, one verse out of Genesis that you're very familiar with. Uh, Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 28, a little bit further down, says to um, the humans that God would create, Adam and Eve, subdue the earth and have dominion. We recognize right out of the gate that work is part of the divine mandate for human beings. It's not a product of sin. It's much more difficult because of sin, but it's actually part of the original plan. God asked Adam and Eve to have dominion, and dominion requires work, and work requires decision-making and planning. It requires allocation of resources, and when more people came on the scene, an arrangement of labor. As more and more people uh, populated the earth, decision-making processes were developed. And I believe that the seeds of government were sown right there. It's not a plan B that was developed because of the fall of man, although some uh, theologians have made that argument. Uh, there are other references in Scripture that I think give me a good sense that government is part of God's design. I'll just mention a few of them. Scripture notes that divine government is implemented after Christ's return in Isaiah 9. The new heaven and new earth will have a sovereign. We know this. The, there's hierarchy even among the angels, and so there's order that God has established for his angelic beings, once again suggesting an institution uh, with decision-making processes. I'll continue that thought in a minute, but let's go ahead and read uh, from Romans 13. It's a well-known passage. Uh, it's remarkable, we're, we're uh, enjoying a series on Romans at Cedarville in chapel, and uh, we've, we've gone through the first couple of chapters which are focusing on man's need, our fallenness, and the seriousness of our condition. But then uh, we moved most recently into three and four and five, and there we see the great grace of God given to us through uh, his son, his sacrifice, his victory over death. And then from there it moves on and talks about the book does about the marks of the Christian life. And right on the heels of that comes Romans chapter 13. And we have this famous passage that we know uh, talking about our responsibility to be submitted to authority. So let's take a look at Romans 13. I'll read just the first uh, seven verses. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, 
For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your, your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. The authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. I truly believe that we see here the framework for government given to us by God. God gave government a list of responsibilities here. Pursue justice. The reference to the use of the sword is a pretty powerful metaphor, and I don't think it's just a metaphor. I think it's actually a literal expression of the power of government to punish wrongdoing. Paul labels those who serve in government the servants of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath. There's a connection between divine and temporal justice, and God uses the institution of government to pursue that justice. Therefore, government becomes God's servant. My colleague at Cedarville, Mark Smith, said this about government. Government is not about us, and it does not flow from us, but it is about God, end quote. Romans 13, 1 tells us God instituted it. We know from Scripture that God created three institutions, right? Family, the church, and government. Man, thinking that he knows better, has tried to create many more. Man, thinking that he knows better, has tried to redefine them. The reality is we know there are three basic institutions. And in some cases, what man has tried to do is take those institutions and have them do more than they were supposed to do or encroach into areas where they really don't belong. And probably uh, where we see that the most is in the area of government. But nonetheless, these are the institutions that God created to help human beings achieve the things that they cannot adequately achieve on their own. Romans 13 makes it very clear that there is no authority except from God, and, those authority, and that authority that does exist is instituted by him. Uh, Proverbs 21.1 talks about how God turns the heart of the king. Daniel 2.22 reminds us that God sets up and takes down kings. John 19, Jesus acknowledged Pilate's authority even when he was uh, in chains in front of him, but he noted that the only reason Pilate had that authority is because it had been given to him by God. Now, some Christians have suggested that government is really not a divine tool, but rather falls into Satan's domain. Uh, it can be a rival for our obedience, and I recognize that concern. However, I don't want that concern to drive the way we view, script, review government, or excuse me, view government. We should let Scripture drive the way we view government. Uh, some have pointed to a passage like Luke 4, Satan controls the kingdoms of this world. Sometimes uh, Christian pacifists, for example, will point to that. Say, see, here's the problem with government. It's really the domain of Satan. They'll say Christ's ethic of love and sacrifice stands in contrast to the use of the sword for the purpose of justice by the government. In the extreme, this position would prohibit involvement in government by Christians. I'm not comfortable with that assertion at all. In fact, I will suggest to you towards the tail end of my comments here that as Christians, I believe we have a responsibility to be engaged in our government. And what a um, 
What a blessing it is when followers of Christ actually have the opportunity to serve in government. And what a blessing that is for our communities and for our land when that happens. Now, giving them due justice, though, recognizing that government can do wrong, um, I, I want to be as fair to, to those that hold this position as possible. Government, indeed, can do evil. And nobody in this room is shocked by that assertion. <laughs> this is clear in a fallen world. And it's clear we don't have to look very far in our government's actions, even uh, recently, to find examples where we might be um, concerned about what, what government is doing. The, concern, the current pursuit of the woke agenda in the military, for example, or in, in federal government offices is but one example. But nowhere does scripture assert that government is a plan B for God. It had to be moved into because of man's decision not to follow God. If one adopts the viewpoint argued by some pacifists, it seems to preclude the ability to evaluate government as good or bad or better or worse. Rather, government by definition is evil. It also creates a problematic understanding of the created order. Regardless of where you stand in this debate, the basic answer to the question is still the same. God instituted government for his purposes. My son Jacob uh, is in graduate school in history. He and I had a good conversation slash debate about this topic. Was government instituted by God as a positive good? Was it a plan B? He's no pacifist. I don't want to put him in that category. That's a completely different category. But he made a pretty good argument. He said, you know what? Um, sinless man, as God created sinless man, would not have needed the assistance in allocating values. So therefore, all human beings would have had the same value system and government might not have been needed. Government's main purpose, he said, is to respond to sin, to pursue justice. It's a good argument. In fact, he's in good company, right? Uh, if we go back in time, we find that uh, St. Augustine held this very position. So there is some pretty heavyweight church fathers that we can point to and say, all right, that's the position. Uh, regardless of where you land on this debate, Jacob and I agree to disagree, regardless of where you uh, land on this debate, we know God instituted government for his purposes, and we should then look at it with that understanding. All right, so what's, what's government's purpose? It's tough when your eyes change as you get older, isn't it? All right. Government performs an ordering and collective decision-making function that is necessary within human community. All right. This task, I think, existed even before sin, and then I'll just take my little jab at my son there. John Adams said this, the purpose of government is to produce the greatest quantity of human happiness, end quote. You might think, well, wait a minute. Is government really about our happiness? When, when our founding fathers of this nation use the word happiness, they're really talking about a word that we would probably use as flourishing. The government's purpose is to allow human beings to flourish. I believe that's why God instituted it. And flourishing for us as believers means that we're able to fulfill the call that God placed on our lives effectively. The government's purpose ought to be to order society in such a fashion that we're able to thrive and pursue the call that he's placed on our lives. Romans 13, that we just read a minute ago, if you go back and look at, at verses 2, 3, and 4, you see that government rewards good behavior and punishes bad. At least that's what it's supposed to do. I know you and I can think about various scenarios in the news recently where we feel like government has really failed to punish wrong behavior. But that's its purpose. Chuck Colson focuses on this a lot, and I'll talk about his comments in just a little bit. But government is to restrain evil. It is to promote a just social order that, so people can live in harmony. Government can encourage good, and it can, it can punish evil, but it cannot change the heart of man. 
And that's a critical distinction that we're going to focus on here in just a minute. Uh, Michael O., a commentary, uh, a com in a commentary on this passage, reminds us that while government pursues justice in this world, ultimate justice and vengeance belongs to God. The government can be an instrument that God uses to pursue justice in this world, and we can thank God for that, especially when it does that job well. Even so, we recognize that government does not always do this well and sometimes struggles with determining the difference between good and evil. In the process of putting some notes together here, I saw an old quote from a, a cultural critic back in the early part of the 20th century, Will Rogers. He said, I don't make jokes, I just watch the government and report the facts. <laughs> in another uh, site, I saw this. Uh, someone asked the Senate, the United States Senate chaplain, do you pray for the senators? And he responded, no, after I hear them talk, I pray for the nation. All of us can point to examples where we're disappointed by what government has done. But that's because it's filled with human beings, and human beings are fallen, right? And so we don't expect government to be perfect. On the other hand, too many times in world history we've seen examples where the government has been an unmitigated evil. 20th century examples come to mind, right? World War II, Nazi Germany under the leadership of Adolf Hitler, Stalinist, Stalinist uh, Russia, uh, Pol Pot in Cambodia, and we could point to examples around the world even today. In those examples, government used some of its power for evil ends. Its purposes were, perver per were perverted. And we shouldn't be surprised by this, right? We see examples of in the Old Testament. Uh, in uh, Dr. Smith, he used the example of Amos 5 in some writing that he's done on this topic, where the people of Israel had been oppressing the poor and accepting bribes, perverting justice. In my own uh, Sunday school class, we've been going through the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is constantly pointing out the problems in the, among the lives of the people of Judah. And in specific passages, he goes after the leaders and says, you're allowing this to take place. It is your responsibility to lead well. And in many cases, they had not done that. Proverbs 29.2 tells us there's going to be good leaders and bad leaders. And it recognizes that when the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. Uh, third, God uses government to achieve his divine will. And this is, this is complicated, and I don't pretend to understand it all, but God brings about his will, ultimately bringing him glory, even in cases where we see government acting poorly. In Daniel 1, God used the Babylonians to bring justice on his own people. In Exodus, God used Egypt to enslave Israel and ultimately free it. The great story of Joseph preserving his family in famine after all that had transpired, being sold into slavery and spending time in prison unjustly. God uses government sometimes in odd ways to bring about his purposes. It's also clear that governments and their actions can reap God's blessing or his punishment. Certainly plenty of examples of that, and as, as I said, we've been looking at the book of Jeremiah, it's remarkable. It's so easy to be critical of the people of Judah. Jeremiah tells them, if you don't do this, God's going to do this, and then God does that. And he comes back to them and says, if you don't do this, God's going to do this. <laughs> and they don't obey. But at the same time, if we examine our lives too often, we can find examples where the word of God is really clear to us, and we can fall into that same pattern of not always obeying. There are consequences for those actions, and uh, while I want to be careful about making uh, uh, direct connections between what God promised for the people of Israel and our nation today, it seems reasonable 
to expect that if a government doesn't follow uh, the values of Scripture, there will be punishment. This next line is a little bit more controversial. God should protect the, excuse me, government should protect the poor, the foreigner, and the helpless. But notice the language I've used here from exploitation. I'll give you some examples. Uh, let me read a passage out of Isaiah 10. Woe to those who decree, decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice to rob the poor of my people of their right that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. This is clearly referring to Israel. It's talking specifically about how they're treating certain groups of people within their society. Again, I'd be careful about the application, but recognize that God has called upon Israel to treat the poor, the foreigner, the helpless in a particular kind of way. And it seems to me that what's being said here is that the government has a role in protecting its citizens uh, from oppression and certainly from outside aggressors. Um, be careful about taking a, a, a rabbit trail here, but I have to express what I did in my class this week to my students, my frustration with the American press and the reporting about what's going on in Israel right now. The nation of Israel has a clear obligation, the government of Israel, to protect its people in the face of terrorist attacks. And for our press to, to focus on um, what they perceive to be Israel's past wrongs in this moment is, is shocking to me, knowing that the, the ruling authority in Gaza is committed to the destruction of Israel. Israel has a responsibility to protect itself, and it's a God-given responsibility. Uh, let, me, let me focus in on these three categories, though, the poor, the foreigner, and the helpless. The government has a role in protecting its citizens from oppression and from outside aggressors. What's not clear from Scripture is that government is to provide for the poor. We've given government that task in this country, but that's not clearly articulated in Scripture. And I'll let you, uh, you know, focus in on that question a little more in your own thinking about whether it should or it shouldn't, but that is not what I'm talking about here in this passage. The passages that I'm focusing on talk about government protecting the poor from someone who might oppress them, causing them to be poor. We have an obligation to the poor. I think the church has an obligation to the poor. I'm not sure that it's quite so clear that government does. It's also not clear, as some Christians have said, that the U.S. should have open borders. The protection of foreigners, mostly talked about in the Old Testament, but sometimes in the New, um, is generally, especially in the Old Testament, as I read it, and again, I, I go back to my, my um, disclaimer at the beginning, I'm not a theologian, but from my reading, what I found is uh, compelling is that the foreigners that God is calling on Israel to protect are being used as a picture for their uh, being God's chosen people in a world that is too often rejecting God. It was a reminder to them regularly that they would always be foreigners in a foreign land, being God's chosen people. And so they ought to treat foreigners well, but recognize from Old Testament passages that those foreigners were expected to live a certain way. They were supposed to abide by the rules that, is Israeli, uh, that the people of Israel were to abide by. Uh, there was an expectation upon them. And it's really, uh, we have to be very careful, I think. It's hermeneutically problematic to take those passages and say the United States should have open borders. I think that's a, a giant leap that's not founded there. Nonetheless, I think the government has an obligation to protect foreigners that are here from oppression. And I think we as the church ought to take advantage of the opportunity. The world is, is here, right? And your focus on missions is fabulous. 
And you know, my brother's a missionary in Cote d'Ivoire, West Africa. I love international missions and love to support them and love to see the church supporting them. The reality is we, in our everyday lives, have the opportunity to share the gospel with the world, oftentimes just with people living across the street from us. And then finally, the helpless, I think, is a reference to those who have been mistreated or suffered injustice at the hands of others. And God clearly does not countenance a government, government that allows this, and we see that time and time again in Scripture as well. Um, I am, I've got to move along. I think I moved on too quickly there. I had one more point there. Governments are limited in power, and um, we see plenty of examples of this. Government, uh, obedience to government is limited. We are not called to obey the government when it asks us to do wrong. And we can look at the examples of Daniel, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We could look at the midwives in Exodus 1, where the Egyptian pharaoh told the midwives to kill the male-born Jews, and they refused to do that, and rightly so. We could look at Acts 5, 29, where Peter and the apostles say we must obey God rather than man. In this nation, we have the a government, we have given the government many more roles than, we, than what I'm talking about here directly from Scripture. Is this necessarily wrong? Well, no, but I think it requires that we think deeply about the advisability of doing it. I, I laugh, I, I almost chuckle as I say that because we just talked about um, the addition of the 16th and 17th Amendment to the United States Constitution in my U.S. history class. And one of them instituted the federal income tax. And prior to that time, an income tax was unconstitutional. And I said to my students, I can't understand what the American people were thinking at that moment. <laughs> I said, let's take a moment and just pause and have a moment of silence for this really bad decision. Uh, sometimes we give government more power and more authority and more responsibility than maybe we should. Our founders were really quite clear on what government should not do. And frankly, we've changed from a lot of that. Uh, you've heard the old quote, the government big enough to take, give you everything you want is big enough to take everything you have. Right, it's often attributed to Thomas Jefferson. That's not true, but it's still a really good quote. <laughs> they also recognize that if government gives people tangible benefits, then that impacts the way they vote. That's why they didn't want government to do that. And so now we live, you know, that, that ship has sailed. We live in a much different society makes it much more difficult for politicians uh, to speak just about values and ideas. Um, and we ought to be cognizant of that in the system that we're in now. I, I really think that's a good example of where we've deviated from the biblical pattern for government. Ronald Reagan said the nine most terrifying words in the English language, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Some of you remember that. He was saying this because it becomes so large and so expansive it was losing its effectiveness. All right, so what is the biblical response to government? Romans 13 provides a catalog of responses. Submit, be subject, obey, respect and honor, do what is good, pay your taxes. I know it's hard. It's hard to swallow that one, but it's there. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, let me read this passage to you. It's familiar to you, but it'll be helpful for us in this discussion be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and, to those who, and praise those who do good. And this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 
Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This passage says many of the same things that Romans 13 did. Be subject, do good, honor the emperor, love others. Matthew 22 reminds us about giving to Caesar what is due to Caesar. Tim Keller says this is the first theory of limited government. Give Caesar money because his likeness is on it. Give allegiance to God because he is due it. Obey. Uh, generally, we are expected to obey the government. There, is, there are caveats for this in Scripture. We see it. I gave you a couple of examples earlier when human beings are asked to do wrong, um, do, to go against what God has called them to do, then they must, re, they must say no. They must disobey. But we are to obey its laws, and we see plenty of passages that talk about obeying the laws of our government. When we need to change our government, we ought to work peacefully to do so. James 4.17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This passage always reminds me of the famous quote by Edmund Burke, All that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. We have to obey, disobey laws that require us to do evil. If you want to dig into that a little bit more, Francis Schaeffer has done some really fascinating work on this question. He says, so you disobey a law that requires you to do evil um, and try to change it. If you can't change it, then the biblical principle is to flee. Unfortunately for us in this world, fleeing our country is really not the same opportunity that it might have been in biblical times. And then third, and only third, as a last resort, resist. And that's really where the controversy comes in. I'm not going to take the, take the time to talk about that today. Uh, but this idea of obedience is not unlimited. It is not um, without limitations. And uh, plenty of better thinkers than I have, have, have batted that idea around. At a minimum, Scripture is very clear that there are times in which we must disobey. Uh, next is honor. It's mentioned in both of the previous passages that we've talked about. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, 1, for two, 1 through 2 talks about praying for those in authority, and I think um, at a minimum that's, that's a great takeaway for us today. First of all, I urge you then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. It's a remarkable passage. Like, pray for your leaders. There's a payoff here, Right? peaceful and quiet life. Pray for stable social order. Pray that there may be peace. Pray for wisdom on the part of our governing officials. This can be challenging, especially when we disagree with those in authority. I, I get that, and I, I think all of us can and think of politicians that it's very difficult to think about praying for them, but we really ought to, right? What does honoring look like in the political arena for us? We need to remember the exhortations in Scripture about how to treat our neighbor how to treat our neighbor, love our neighbor, how to even treat our enemy, love our enemy. Uh, if we are um, opposed to a politician that happens to be in office, praying for them is the best thing that we can do. Um, even when it's frustrating, even when an election comes by and you see things like the consensus after the election is that 100% of Americans think that 50% of Americans have lost their minds. Romans 13, 7 says, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And sometimes we have to honor the office even if it's very difficult to offer, uh, honor the per 
person holding that office. And remember, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Uh, one final thought here, and then we'll, I'll wrap up with some thoughts about citizenship more directly. I think it's uh, increasingly incumbent upon us as followers of Christ to recognize that government can never usurp our allegiance to God. And, and the excerpt from Billy Graham was excellent there. He made that point very, very well. Nationalism, patriotism, nothing wrong with either one of those concepts properly understood. But if we're not careful, they can usurp our faith in God. They can become the solution to our problems when we recognize that only ultimately the world's challenges will be solved by God. In the Roman Empire, the state demanded allegiance and emperors were often seen as gods. And we can never allow government to become our God. We saw this in the Old Testament as well with the people of Israel. This is a great example of human beings taking something that was originally good and perverting it. Or perhaps more rightly, Satan taking something good and corrupting it. Creating something else for humans to trust in rather than God. And when we do that, what we're doing is creating an idol. This is one of the more significant realizations, I think, for us as believers today. But government, if it becomes an idol, is an idol that cannot provide what we ultimately need. Seen in this light, I think we can do better thinking about those with whom we disagree in the political space. We recognize that they are human beings who don't have the spiritual eyes that we do, who don't understand the ramifications of all that they stand for. And so we ought to pray for them, that God would give them wisdom and discernment, that they might see the error of their ways, that government as a tool be used well for solving the world's problems. Well, let me conclude with this slide. What does citizenship mean for us? And I'll, I'll give you three uh, views that I think are compelling, and then I'll wrap up with a few thoughts that I think come out of these passages. Um, you may not agree with all of them, and that's okay. I think there, um, there's some interpretation involved in some of them, but I think they're compelling for us as we think about what it means to live in a society like ours and be good stewards of the opportunities we have in a free society. Chuck Colson, in his book, Kingdoms in Conflict, talks a lot about the role of the church in evangelism and uh, serving the body of Christ. But he also argues that it is the duty of the church to work for the good of the society. Uh, in Ohio, we have a couple of ballots uh, coming up here in November. One is to basically make abortion available at any point in the, in the, in the pregnancy, and it would become an amendment to the Constitution of the state of Ohio. It's appalling. The second one is to make marijuana, uh, recreational marijuana legal. Uh, my pastor uh, last week, um, and I, I heartily support what he did, stood up on, uh, on the podium and said, let's talk about issue one. Because we know that biblically, this is, this is, not, a, this is not a tenable position. And the church has a role in pursuing the good of society. What, what Colson is talking about here is bringing the values of the kingdom of God into the public square. And I know that a lot of times you will hear people tell you, you can't bring religion into the public square. But I think you know that our founding fathers would reject that. If we could bring them back to life and put them on this stage, they wouldn't all be Christians. But they would say the only way this republic is going to work is if we bring the principles of, Judeo, Judeo, of the Judeo-Christian worldview into the public square. Human beings vote based on what they hold to be most important in life. That's what we want them to do. If that's true, then you cannot divorce 
faith from political action. And, and I think that's what Colson's getting at here. Secondly, a book by Oscar Coleman, The State in the New Testament. This is an older volume. He sees the church as a watchman for the state. It's a very interesting concept. Um, it is designed to warn the public about the government going astray, maybe taking on too much or taking on roles that it is not supposed to or doing the wrong thing. And then thirdly, Richard Mao, who's an individual that I, I disagree with in a lot of areas, uh, theologically as well as some of the applications of scripture, but he wrote a book back in the 1980s called Political Evangelism, where I think he's gotten a lot of things right. And in that book, he says the church should be a model for society in regards to how institutions can work well. And what he's saying is the better we do in this body, in this institution, the more we become a light to other institutions in society. But then notice the title of the book, Political Evangelism. That's, wow. I, it gives, when I first saw it, I thought, ooh, I don't, I don't feel comfortable. <laughs> but what he's saying is how we are involved politically carries with it the opportunity to share the love of Christ and to actually bring the gospel into the public square. And that demands a lot of us, right? And I know I've been guilty of saying things in political spaces out of frustration or anger or irritation that didn't demonstrate that love, right? So how we do things, how we express ourselves matters. But Mao is on to something here. Recognize that politics or government is, is trying to change society in order to improve people. And the gospel is trying to change people and the, not, not to change society, although it will have that impact, but ultimately, it's the reverse process, right? Change the hearts of people, and when you do that, you're ultimately going to impact and improve society. So we've got, we've got, a, we've got a, a categorical distinction there in how we're approaching politics, and I think we can have a very positive impact on society as a result of that. Um, America's system of government puts the responsibility on citizens to keep the government accountable for its actions. So, our situation is a little different than Paul's when he was writing Romans 13. Doesn't mean that what he says there is not applicable to us. It certainly is. It's the word of God. I'm not minimizing that at all. We even see Paul using his rights as a Roman citizen over the course of time that he is imprisoned. And so, that speaks a lot to us about the importance of political system and our ability to use it. I don't think there's any uh, prohibition there in our uh, in the Word of God about our involvement in our political system. I think because we live in a democracy, at some level, we are part of this government. We share some of the responsibility for government to do the right things. And as a result, we must steer government towards just outcomes because of the role that we play. Why do I believe Christians have a responsibility to be involved politically? I think that's the key point. In this system, we have the opportunity to impact government. And as a result of that, some of the responsibilities that government bear fall on our shoulders. But I'll start at the top with what I had. Did I, did I go too far? I apologize. Yes, I did. There it is. All right, so let me run through these quickly and I'll close. Political evangelism. Uh, Pastor David said this in his opening comments. The opportunity we have to be salt and light. How we're involved the things that we pursue. I think in Ohio, the opposition to Amendment 1. Human politics revolves around changing society to produce change in people. We can be about changing people to change society. But it doesn't mean it's just an either or. 
We can be involved politically because it's an opportunity that we face. In Luke 12, so many ways in which we can apply stewardship, but I think it has to apply here. If we have the opportunity to vote, I think there's a stewardship responsibility to do that in a biblical fashion. And then each of us must decide whether we should do more. Supporting a particular political issue, getting involved at a different level, becoming an elected official, supporting an elected official, whatever that, that might be. And all those... In, in, in the spirit of what uh, Chuck Colson and Coleman and others were talking about in terms of bringing biblical principles to bear in the public square. Working for justice, there's no question. I think that is important. And I think you'd agree with me that society's understanding of justice has moved pretty far afield from a biblical understanding of justice. And so it's important for us to try to encourage government to return to that basic understanding of what justice is. Perhaps that was, that's what Coleman's a point about being a watchman is all about. Bringing transcendent values into the public debate. This doesn't mean trying to turn America into a theocracy. We're far too diverse for that, and I don't think that's what God is calling us to do. But it does mean pursuing biblical values because we know ultimately they're good. It only makes sense that we would want to introduce them into the society in which we live. And uh, certainly that is what's driving me as I think about Ohio issues one and two. And then finally, this point that I made earlier, we are our own government. I think we have some responsibility to it. We can't just blame government and say, they're the problem, I can't do anything about it. I wish we could, some days it would be easier. I'm not sure scripture, uh, scripture gives us the out on that, not in this system. I think Paul could have made that argument. I don't know that we can. Ultimately, I think this means that what the Bible says are the responsibilities of government fall, at least in some level, on us. Because we can influence government. We can influence the people that serve in our government. That makes it very hard, I think, to argue that as Christians, we should not be involved. And I have been in situations where I've heard Christians argue, you should not be involved in politics because it's evil. Um, I've never really heard a, a strong argument uh, from a biblical standpoint for that position for all the reasons that I've talked to you about. Yes, the political system is, is fraught with problems. Yes, we don't talk well to one another in American society, but how much distinctiveness can we evidence in our lives as Christians by being involved and engaged in the system the way it was meant to be? In fact, I think scriptural teaching suggests we have an obligation to be involved. And whether it is to produce a better government or to bring biblical values into the public square or ultimately to impact a life that we may not even realize we're impacting. Somebody looks at how we behave and says, you know, there's something different about them. I may disagree with them politically, but I love the way they engage this issue. Maybe that opens the door for a conversation about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think scriptural teaching suggests we have an obligation to be involved, and there's no question in my mind that our nation needs us to be involved. I appreciate the opportunity I've had to share with you today. I appreciate this church. I want you to know that this church uh, is really an answer for, uh, for uh, an answer to prayer in my life, a long time, uh, for Dave and Lori, for an opportunity for them to minister because I knew how special they are. I will be praying for you as you enter into your new church building. I look forward to coming back the next time and seeing you in it. God bless you all.